Hello and welcome to the EMJ podcast with me, your host, Dr. Jonathan Sakia. Today, I'm joined by Mika Zielmans, neurologist and full professor at University Medical Center, or UMC in Utrecht in the Netherlands, and the Dutch Epilepsy Institution. I'm going to apologize up front for my pronunciation, but I'll try the Stichting Epilepsy in Stellingen, Netherlands in the Netherlands. After completing her neurology training at UMC, Maika finished her PhD with honors at the University of Utrecht, entitled New Pre-Surgical Techniques to Characterize the Focus of Epilepsy, and we're going to talk about that. Maika also has qualifications in law and biology from the University of Utrecht, and in engineering from the Technical University in Delft, clearly a very smart lady. Mike is the recipient of many awards, including the L'Oreal UNESCO for Women in Science Award and many others for young researchers in neurology and the American Epilepsy Society Young Investigators Award for Young Researcher and Best Abstract. Mike sits on several scientific committees for organizations such as the Dutch Epilepsy Society and is the co-chair of the Next Generation Task Force at the International League Against Epilepsy. She's also a regular at many conferences around the world. When she has time, she plays field hockey, sails, paints, and of course, spends time with her children. She was telling me that in the Netherlands, PhD ceremonies and inaugural speeches when you become a professor are really sort of Harry Potter style. And she very much likes those traditions. One particular nice little secret that she shared is that her professorial gown was made by hand by a specialized studio in Amsterdam. The outside design follows very strict regulations, but given one is allowed to personalize the inside, the inner lining of her gown consists of her own EEG, electroencephalographic or encephalographic if you're an American uh, signal, and the hat includes a color heat map of that signal. This is one fascinating lady. So please, welcome to the podcast, Professor Maika Zielmans. What a pleasure to have you. Hello, thank you. So what inspired you to go into medicine and specifically into the field of neurology? Um, I've always been inspired by just understanding how our body works, how our human brain works. I, I just love that. And a specific inspiration came from uh, when I was in college. Um, uh, I was learning about the epilepsy surgery. And that really, to me, um, combines everything. Because you really get to understand how the brain works. Uh, just because of the epilepsy, how epilepsy um, presents itself as a disease. But also during surgery, because you don't want to remove areas in the brain that are very highly functional. Uh, so we need to test uh, those areas. And that's, uh, yeah, that's an aspect of my work, which I uh, love. So you've got uh, international experience undertaking research at Montreal Neurological Institute in, uh, in Canada, as well as University College Hospital here in London, Queen Square. Uh, how have these experiences shaped your current interests and practices? And what perspective can you bring to mind on you know, different attitudes to, to research and clinical practice? Well, there's, especially in the field of epilepsy surgery, I think there are a lot of differences. Uh, of course, also uh, similarities, but um, uh, yeah, I think I learned them both. Um, 
what you have to imagine is that, um, so with epilepsy surgery, we try to understand the focus of epilepsy. We try to understand where epilepsy is coming from. But to, to determine where it's coming from is, is different around the world. Uh, some people are more, uh, like everybody uses EEG and MRI, but some people are way more uh, focused on the MRI results. Some people are way more focused on the EEG results. Uh, some people use more um, what we call uh, depth EEG, so uh, stereotactically placed uh, small electrodes that really go into the brain. Um, other people use electrocorticography, which records over the cortical surface of the brain. Um, uh, and also these electrodes can be used for a long period and try to capture the seizures, or you can do it in a short time during surgery. Um, many centers uh, apply well, they, they focus mostly on one or two or three of these techniques. And by going around uh, to different centers and learning what other people did, we try to apply in Utrecht actually uh, multiple techniques and always try to use the, the technique that we think is most suitable for that particular uh, problem or, or patient. So that's how it shaped me to... Uh, I took home uh, a lot of things that I learned. Um, and research-wise, I learned, especially in Montreal, about the uh, high-frequency oscillations. It was a newly found signal um, when we record the EEG and we filter it and we filter away all the low frequencies. Then actually we find something which are like very small vibrations in very high frequencies and they're interesting. So I learned about them in the uh, in these stereotactically placed uh, depth electrodes from Montreal. And I took them home with me. And in Utrecht, we recorded them intraoperatively. So we're going to come on to high-frequency oscillations or HFOs because I found that absolutely fascinating. Well, I found everything you're doing fascinating. So, But let's, let's start at the very, very beginning, as a famous song goes. Many of our listeners, uh, Mike, are, are healthcare professionals, doctors and such like, but we also have an audience of, um, of interested lay people. Given your interest in epilepsy, can you start with a primer on the different types of the condition, the etiologies and the usual diagnostic and treatment journeys that patients might embark upon? Yeah, so epilepsy is a very heterogeneous disease um, in the sense there's so many forms of epilepsy so people may I, I think most people know uh, the seizures that that like the big seizures so somebody is shaking is falling to the ground uh, is uh, maybe incontinent for for urine um, and is out of consciousness I think that's the most well-known uh, typical seizure but there are a lot of seizures uh, people can have and a lot of etiologies um, so epilepsy is more like a general term for a lot of causes but the end point is the same it's like an electrical activity in the brain uh, that is often spreading and and that gives some kind of behavior but next to the the well-known seizures this behavior may also be like very small, subtle things, like somebody can have uh, small twitches or somebody can have, uh, like, smell something 
or somebody ha- can have a sort of déjà vu uh, feeling, like they, they have the feeling that they, they are somewhere and they have this, this strange feeling like, oh, I have been here before. Well, well they haven't. Um, uh, so uh, it can be a sensation in a, in a finger or a foot. In, in other words, it can be almost any uh, thing uh, can happen. Epilepsy in general is divided into uh, more generalized epilepsy and focal epilepsy. So in focal epilepsy, there's one focus in the brain where it starts and then the seizure can spread uh, over the brain. Uh, in generalized epilepsy, it's usually that all like all cells are a little bit more likely to produce this, this electrical activity. So when people get a seizure, they, they go from zero to, to everything all at once. So they, they first they are just regular and then all of a sudden they have a seizure where all the brain cells are active. So that's what calls generalized epilepsy. So, and the etiologies are also much different. Um, again, can be almost anything, like uh, genes can play, genetic disorders can play a role. Uh, focal epilepsy is usually, usually there's also some kind of focus, so a lesion. So this can be a developmental thing. It can be um, like a tumor, although that's certainly not the most prevalent thing. Uh, it can be after uh, a brain concussion. It can be like an infection, uh, vascular malformation. So all kind of things that give pressure on the cortical surface of the brain can give epilepsy. So basically, uh, any damage to the brain can induce uh, a journey, a, a seizure journey. And obviously, diagnosis and treatment would presumably focus first of all on the etiology. So if it's a brain tumor, you're going to focus on that. If it's a traumatic brain injury, you're going to look for a subdural or an extradural or a subarachnoid hemorrhage and so on and so forth. But then there's a whole whole panoply of of diseases that, you know, absent those sort of conditions. So let's get into that. But actually, first of all, your inaugural speech, you took a philosophical approach to the invasive EEG, the electroencephalograph or encephalograph. I never understood why Americans pronounce it um, EKG and we say ECG and they call it an electroencephalograph and we in Britain call it an electroencephalograph. So first of all, tell me which is correct and then tell, tell us about your, your speech and what makes you so passionate about epilepsy. <laughs> Thank you. Well, I think I'm not the person to to say what is correct uh, in in language terms. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, if you're not the right person to tell us how to pronounce <laughs> it, I think we're in deep trouble. I can't go on better. But yeah, I mean, it's, just tell us about your inaugural speech and tell us about your your journey into this and why you're so passionate to help people with the, these diseases. Yeah. Well, to start with the first, your last question. Um, so epilepsy is a disease um, that affects people for their whole life. Uh, so if you get epilepsy, especially the, the, yeah, it can arise at a later onset, but there are people who, who have it from a very early onset. And that makes actually epilepsy surgery so special because if we do that right, if we do that in a good manner, 
we can save many, many years of, of uh, quality of life uh, for people. Um, so that's uh, uh, one thing that makes me uh, passionate about it. The other thing is that patients or people with epilepsy, um, I don't think, I mean, I don't know though, if you can estimate how, how much epilepsy occurs. Uh, do, you, do you have any idea? Uh, no, but I'm hoping you're going to educate me. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's almost like 1% of people. Well, I don't think that... That's much higher than I thought it was. Exactly. It's not, it's, it's not so well known. Uh, so it's, how do you say it? It's, it's like a disease that's, that goes in, in the shadows a little bit. That's, that's not well known. And I think that there's a lot to win there, actually. Because, as I said, like if we can help these people not have seizures, uh, it also helps uh, people to uh, be more like active in life, more participate more in society. Uh, because the seizures themselves, they're well, you can understand, they're very threatening. So, I mean, I know people who, who even can't leave their house because... Yeah, they know that if they get a seizure on the street, they will be very uh, likely to be in danger. So it's a very dis- it can be a very disabilitating disease. And it can be a disease that we can treat very well if we just know, indeed, if we just understand it a little bit better. Um, so I think the amount of progress that we can make is, uh, is huge. And that's uh, one of my reasons why I feel we should work on this. Yeah, and then the approach I took is indeed a, a bit of a philosophical one. Um, so if you think back about like the very uh, first uh, philosophical thoughts there were, uh, like back in the, the old days in Greece, there, are, there, there were even the thoughts like, like what, what do we actually see if we see something? So if you look outside and you, uh, well, if you see a tree... Is this tree really existing? Is it just you seeing the tree? Is it because you have an idea that a tree exists and then you see a tree and then you say, ah, that's a tree? So this very basic thoughts on what, what are we actually seeing? Um, you can apply that actually in, in, um, in the field of epilepsy because there's the same thing. There's electrical activity what we measure with the EEG but then the question is is it like is what we see for instance if you see a seizure is that actually really the origin of the seizure or is it just something yeah you see later on because it has become large enough to to be able to see but is that really the focus of epilepsy or should we think well there's more to it. Are there things that we cannot see directly? And then, of course, I think about my, my, my high-frequency oscillations, my HFOs, those little vibrations. Like, are those signs of uh, the focus of epilepsy that we can only see if we look at a very specific manner? Or is it even more so that there is some sort of source that like, we can't even perceive with the EEG, but we need things like machine learning that combine all kinds of information to really find this ground truth of what, what the epileptic source is. Do you understand what I try to say? 
Yes, I, I do. And, and, and let's, let's dig into EEG, electroencephalography, encephalography, whatever the heck you pronounce it. Let's call it EEG. It's been, it's been deployed for a range of indications. And in fact, I've played with it with some people who are much smarter than me, uh, Dr. Ryan Darcy and his crew up in, um, in Surrey uh, near Vancouver in Canada, uh, looking at TBI. And, and looking at um, uh, various characterizations of, uh, of EEG. It's been deployed for a range of con in indications, conditions, but in epilepsy, it's been quite helpful. And I know, obviously, this is an area you're an expert. So tell us about the role of EEG in characterizing and learning more about epilepsy, given the caveats you present. Yeah. Um, so the most basic reason to do an, an, an and that's a surface EEG, so uh, on the outside of the, the skull, uh, is to, to see if somebody has epilepsy, yes or no. And there are two things we can see in the EEG. One is the seizures themselves, but then of course uh, somebody needs to have a seizure and then you record the EEG and then you say, ah, there's the seizure. You can see that as electrical activity coming from the brain. But there's more. Sometimes uh, between seizures, there are little, well, what we call spikes. Um, there are little spikes of electrical activity that pop up and they can show us also if there's an underlying disease of epilepsy, probably. It's like um, a spark, like uh, if you have uh, problems with your electricity and there can be sparks between uh, the electrical wires, well, so it can be in the brain. There are like little little sparks uh, going on there. And that's what you can measure from the outside. And these sparks can actually already tell us a little bit about also not only if somebody has epilepsy, but again, if that's a generalized or a focal type of epilepsy, because we can see if these sparks are occurring yeah, in one spot or broadly over the whole brain. And also if they occur from like from the left side, from the right side. So they tell us also a little bit on uh, um, yeah, the, the, the focus of the seizures. Okay, so um, you've mentioned high-frequency oscillations, HFOs in neonates to predict epilepsy, a biomarker, if you will, and not just in neonates, to be fair. Can you expand on that, please, and tell us about, a bit more about HFOs? Yeah, I already mentioned them. They're the one of the main topics of my research. Um, so I just told you about these sparks, which we call spikes. And they are like very large amplitude, little, well, things that you can see in just in this EEG, even if you record it from the outside. And um, actually with the studies, well, with several uh, centers found, but, but Montreal played a, a big role in this, we found that these spikes are not the only thing you can see in between seizures, but actually often together with these spikes, we see these, uh, what we call high frequency oscillations. So they're little vibrations of the electrical activity. And probably this is due to uh, neurons that fire um, on the one hand much together and on the other hand, uh, much unequal. And that's why you can produce, the brain can produce these very high frequencies, which it doesn't produce normally. So it's not healthy brain tissue that can produce this. It's unhealthy brain that produces these high frequencies. And um, 
we think it localizes the epileptic activity better than these spikes because it's like the really little tissue vibrations that we see. So if we come back to the philosophical approach, I think it's really, really the epilepsy that you see more than just the result of the epilepsy, which is in the seizures that spread and the spikes that spread. Uh, so that's why we're interested in these little vibrations. And in neonates and also in other studies, we try to see, like, can they predict um, uh, also even from the outside? Because we can record them sometimes a little bit from the outside as well. And can we predict who has more, who will get epilepsy and who doesn't? This has been shown in rats, so there it works. <laughs> in neonates, it was a little bit more difficult. So there it was, yeah, not that likely or not that well to predict. But it helps, for instance, in uh, children with uh, what we call benign epilepsies uh, or relatively benign epilepsies. There it can make a distinction if somebody will have uh, like a less benign course of their disease or a more benign and just with a few seizures uh, course of their disease. So it does have some predictive value. So um, you co-authored an article entitled The Value of Intraoperative Electrographic Biomarkers for Tailoring During Epilepsy Surgery from Group Level to Patient Level Analysis. Can you give us a summary of what that paper was all about. Because I, you know, I'm a surgeon by background. I like guddling around inside the body. Tell us about uh, the role of, uh, of this during surgery. So, um, so what I talked about now was what I said, like in between seizures, the EEG sometimes shows some sudden abnormalities. But then the question can also be like, can't you just look at the whole uh, EEG signal and doesn't it show, like, if it records uh, across uh, abnormal tissue, doesn't that show some subtle abnormalities that you can't see by eye, but can we maybe uh, see it if we do, well, quite sophisticated uh, signal analysis uh, methods? So that's one thing we did in that paper. We tried several methods and tried to see what uh, what worked out and for instance well there are several yeah it's quite technical but several ways to access this kind of signal so for instance you can look at the signal and how often there are sudden changes in the signal unexpected changes that you can't predict from the signal itself that's occurring more uh, over epileptic tissue uh, you can look at the spread between different channels, so how the electric signal uh, spreads over uh, certain channels. And that's, well, it's quite difficult to really capture that, um, but it, it seems to be that the network of epilepsy is also, especially focally, different uh, than outside uh, the unhealthy tissue. And um, another method we found was, uh, which is we call phase amplitude coupling. So you look at how the, the phases and the frequencies are coupled to each other. So the lower frequencies and the higher frequencies, how they are connected more or less. And um, there are also clues there uh, to predict where the epilepsy is coming from. So it's a very, it's, it's all mathematical ways 
to review the EEG and to try to find sort of the epileptic signature that is typical for the epileptic tissue. So that's what we tried to do. And uh, well, as I said, that the phase amplitude coupling was one of the winners, so to say. Um, uh, but still, it's so it works, but it's still always difficult to get it to an individual patient level. So it works for the group. But then the question is, of course, does it work well enough that we can guide the neurosurgeon with these kind of yeah, abnormalities in the signal that we find? And, well, I must admit we are not there yet, but, uh, yeah, I wish we, uh, we will get there someday. So I know that you've also talked about and are writing about intraoperative electrocorticography in people with brain tumours and high-density uh, uh, recordings. Can, can you tell us a little bit about other indications for this sort of technology? Yeah. Yeah, so uh, that work is not published yet, but um, we are uh, looking into, well, it, part of it is, has been published, but we have some very exciting uh, new results, um, which actually seem to tell us um, not only if, so if you have a brain tumor, and of course there's the, also the question, like you can remove the, the tumor, like you want to remove the unhealthy brain tumor to prevent uh, yeah, the, the tumor from growing, but you can also want to remove the epilepsy. And ideally, you would, of course, do both. Like you remove the tumor, but you also uh, try to get the patient seizure-free. So what we did is we recorded with these uh, electrocorticography, so over the brain surface uh, with these electrodes. And we found, actually, that we can not only see where the epilepsy is, what, what we already knew, what we already did, but also that if we then, uh, if there's a spot of uh, much epileptic activity and we re- remove that uh, part, little part of the little tissue of the brain, um, even if it's on the MRI showing no abnormality at all, we found that uh, the pathology actually found infiltrative uh, tumor growth there. So. Yeah, we hope, we think that the, uh, that this method, so the uh, invasive recording of the uh, electrocorticography, can actually help us not only to tell where the epilepsy is coming from, but even how and where the, the tumor is growing. So um, continuing on the, the, the theme of surgery, one of your key research areas, as mentioned, is, is epilepsy surgery. Can you outline the various surgical approaches to treating epilepsy surgically and when they're indicated? Something I know a little bit about. I know a little bit about vagal nerve stimulation and mapping of epileptogenic foci in the brain and then ablating them. So can you take us through, uh, you know, here we are in you know, the latter part of 2023 as we hold this conversation. It'd just be really nice to have a a state-of-the-art, if you will. Yeah. So the state-of-the-art is different across countries, but uh, the possibilities are growing and growing. So the most uh, classical approach is a resection, so really removing the epileptic tissue. But you can also do a disconnection, so you don't really remove it, but you disconnect it in several manners. 
An ablation, so a laser ablation, is uh, one of the uh, more recent possibilities, uh, which is applied a lot in the States, but we do it in Utrecht as well. Yeah, mostly for for typical uh, some typical indications. What we can also do is if we record with the invasive EEG, um, you can also do a thermocoagulation, so an ablation using these electrodes uh, to, to, uh, to produce heat and so to burn uh, away a little bit uh, of the brain. And then there's all kind of stimulation indeed. So there's uh, like uh, called deep brain stimulation as is also done in Parkinson's disease, but well, at a slightly different focus can be useful for epilepsy. You have uh, a stimulation of the the cortical surface, uh, which can be done. Um, and this can be like a responsive stimulation. So some, a device that records the seizure activity and then stimulates to try to stop the uh, seizure activity. And as you mentioned, there's the uh, vagal nerve stimulation. So that's uh, the peripheral vagal nerve that's stimulated, trying also, which can also help to reduce at least the number of seizures. Okay, so very helpful um, and interesting. I'm, I'm reflecting on your comment about it differs country to country. Yeah, that's, boy, that's a whole other podcast. It's probably a whole other podcast series. So just moving on a bit, um, can you explain the aims of the Next Generation Task Force at the International League Against Epilepsy, which you've been co-chairing? Well, what, what, does, what does that entail? What are the goals there? I'm not active there right now anymore, but I did initiate it. Um, and that is uh, that we uh, wanted more activity from the young people. From my own experience, when you were visiting an, an, uh, a conference on epilepsy, there was a lot of networking, but especially between the, yeah, the more older generation. Uh, so what I actually started with was just uh, throwing some parties <laughs> just to get a little bit more uh, connection between uh, the young people. But it has actually evolved to a very serious uh, yeah, sort of branch or part of the International League Against Epilepsy. I'm very happy that some very active persons took it over uh, to organize all kind of uh, meetings, like separate meetings, like teaching uh, activities, try to get uh, a lot of, during these conferences, a lot of uh, connectivity between, connections between young people from all over the world. And uh, yeah, so I'm very proud that uh, it was a small <laughs> uh, initiative, um, uh, but it turned out uh, as a very uh, uh, big uh, well, an active group uh, at the moment. And I think that this will probably hold true for many research areas, that it's it's so important to get uh, young people involved at a very early uh, stage. Um, I, uh, yeah, I liked it. <laughs> well, so um, we mentioned differences in different countries and different ways of approaching this disease. What, what, what's on the horizon for the diagnosis and treatment of, um, of epilepsy? Yeah, I think there can be, uh, of course, the, the, the machine learning, uh, the artificial intelligence is, is uh, growing and growing. And I think it can be help, very helpful in this field as well uh, to, um, 
to better predict and better understand yeah what what is a person needs especially because it's such a heterogeneous disease um yeah to get like like personalized medicine i think ai can help us actually to better uh, predict if somebody has certain characteristics like for instance what medication is best to use what treatment what are the options what uh uh, what are the chances, for instance, of epilepsy surgery? So I think that's one part where it can grow. And on the other hand, for the epilepsy surgery, I really am still a believer. I'm a believer that there is some sort of ground truth that we should be able to find, uh, especially with this electrical signal, but maybe combined with the like the MRI and also maybe the metabolic uh, signals. And I... Yeah, I, I, my aim would be, um, or what I hope is that what we achieve is that we can first from the outside with all the, the, the possibilities that are there, like magnetoencephalography, uh, all kind of metabolic MRI possibilities, um, that we, yeah, more and more are more and more better to uh, find the focus, but also the network of epilepsy. And that also intraoperatively, we can use that information and that um, we go into a treatment that is really personalized. I mean, it is always, always, of course, already very personalized uh, because it's never the same surgery. Um, but I think it can be even more personalized that we really understand how this works. What, like, where's the focus of this epilepsy? How does the network work and what kind of... And maybe we will end up that you that a person gets both a resection and a stimulation, or or we know upfront that a resection won't work, and they need this kind of stimulation that will yeah serve them uh, the best. So that's uh, what I would strive for for personalized treatment, which is already the case, of course. But we can grow in uh, our diagnostic uh, and other information to add that really. Uh, to our knowledge. Mike, I, I always like to finish these uh, fascinating conversations by asking a question of my guests. If you were granted three wishes for the future of healthcare in your field, what might those wishes be? Yeah, so I think I discussed uh, some of them already. So one of my wishes is that epilepsy becomes better known by well, in general, uh, so I'm very happy to, that you gave me this opportunity to talk about it now. Um, so it gets a little bit out of the shadows. And also, if you think about research money-wise, like if you look in how much money, research money goes to epilepsy and to other diseases, it's like really, yeah, lower uh, than, than other common neurological diseases. Well, as I said, uh, I believe that the treatment is uh, can be improved a lot. Uh, so that's my other wish: is um, uh, yeah, that we that we will uh, go uh, get much further in this diagnosis and and pre-surgical diagnosis, and finally the treatment, so we can uh, save many many life years uh, for many people. You know, a number of years ago, Micah, I was out having lunch with a friend of mine. Um, he's a very well-known musician, and we were 
we met in Chicago and we were having lunch. And as we were sitting there having lunch, a gentleman fell off a chair and collapsed having a grand mal seizure. And I went over to render help and he very kindly went and called for an ambulance. And it was interesting to notice that everyone else in the restaurant, other than his lunch companion, just behaved as though nothing was going on. And it made a huge impression on me. And I was thinking about not only the disease this gentleman suffered, but the dis-ease it caused and the social embarrassment and the limitations. And it always struck me as such a profoundly public disease and such a profoundly private disease. I have to say thank you for all the wonderful work you're doing to help people live with this disease and also to help solve the problems. It's been amazing having you with us. Dr. Michael Zilmans, thank you. Professor, you're a superstar. <laughs> thank you very much. Folks, please subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Like us on social media. Tell your friends. Check out the archives. There's absolutely gobs and gobs of great podcasts out there. Um, I'm, I'm just the facilitator. There's amazing guests. So please listen in and join us next week for another fascinating episode of the AMJ podcast with me, your host, Dr. Jonathan Sakia. Thanks for listening. Please stay safe, stay well, stay curious. Bye for now. Bye.